This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to Pacific Review from ABC Radio Australia. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. Today on the show, we take a look back at the stories that defined the region in 2022. The year started with a bang, with January's devastating volcanic eruption and tsunami in Tonga. We revisit some of the touching stories from the people picking up the pieces after the disaster. Uh, everything's everything. Like it's, it's a write-off. Like it's, it's, there's nothing there. It was a big year for elections in the Pacific too, with Vanuatu, Fiji and Papua New Guinea all going to the polls. We'll look back at the key moments from the votes. It's the worst election and I think, I don't know what our country holds for us. But first, we start in Fiji. For the first time since the country gained independence, Fiji has seen a peaceful constitutional transition to a new government. Prime Minister Sitiveni Rambuka now leads a coalition, bringing an end to the 16-year rule of Frank Bainimarama's Fiji First government. And as one of his first acts as Prime Minister, Mr Rambuka overturned a ban on the late exiled academic Bridge Lal and his family, allowing his ashes to finally return home to Fiji. For more, I spoke to journalist Lide Muvono in Fiji, who started by explaining the significance of this move. Early in um, Frank Banmarama's rule, which occurred in December of 2006, Dr. Bridge Lal was among many intellectuals who protested against the, the takeover and the coup, and who was very vocal and um, led protests uh, against the, the military rule. And he was taken to um, the military camp, which was quite common of uh, Frank Manorama's government at that time to do. People would be taken up to you know, military installations and interrogated quite um, strongly, for, for want of a better description. So he had um, suffered uh, mentally and physically, and, and yet he continued to do that. And so as a result, in 2015, he was exiled. He was banned from coming back to the country. He, his wife and his family, who then resided in Australia all of this time. And um, towards the end of his life, he passed away a year and a bit now. Towards mm-hmm. the end of his life, he asked the government, he asked the, the Fiji First government to let him back into the country. When he was very ill, his wife asked the government for the same thing because it had been his wish uh, to spend out the end of his life back in Tambia, the sugarcane farming community that he grew up in. But the government refused entry. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there was a nationwide appeal to his cause. So I think um, that being the first thing for this coalition government to do, is representative of, um, you know, the platform they came in on, uh, which, amongst other issues, uh, they topped freedom and, and um, you know, freedom from oppression and, and justice as as um, being one of their causes. And it's been quite well received now as we're seeing people um, on, on social media just praise them for, for doing this symbolic act. Um, Lude, I wanted to pa- pick up on something you mentioned before about how it is to be a journalist there in Fiji under this new government. Can you tell us a bit about that? Um, well, um, I had for the past three weeks, the week before polls and then polling week itself and then in the count, I had some very, very um, strong and significant personal decisions to make about my safety. Um, things had been 
pretty tough. And so I, um, I needed security support mm. over the past three weeks because the, um, the, the political divide in Fiji um, was very, very divisive. Um, you know, there were threats against me and my safety and that of my family uh, when I was um, reporting on things. And um, I think that if an, another Fiji First leadership would have um, been very difficult for me and for others like me who were um, reporting on things independently and, and um, you know, telling of the reality on the ground. That was ABC journalist Lide Muvono in Fiji speaking to me there. Let's take you now back to May, where the big news for the region was China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi's visit to Solomon Islands to meet with Prime Minister Manasseh Sogavari. His visit came just weeks after the two countries agreed to a controversial security pact. On the morning of that visit, Jordan Fennell spoke with Dr. Anouk Ride, a Solomon Islands-based researcher affiliated with the Initiative for Peacebuilding at the University of Melbourne. She began by talking about the significance of the visit to politics in the region. Um, well, this week is certainly a, a big step up in the diplomatic relations between China and Solomon Islands. But... Um one of the things I've been sort of talking about in the last few weeks, too, is, you know, after these uh, announcements are done and, you know, things sort of move on with the Australian election, we really need to start talking about Solomon Island security threats and what's actually happening here and what the real um, needs are right now. And what are those What are those needs? What are the real security threats? There seems to be a, a geopolitical stoush over who can best help Solomon Islands deal mm. with these security threats, but what are the realities of that? Yeah, exactly. So um, we've got a number of security problems right now or crime that's sort of happening um, more or less out in the open right now. And, you know, in the cities in particular, that's theft. It's illegal um, sales of alcohol and marijuana. It's organized prostitution, money laundering. These are all occurring you know, on a regular basis and um, have, the police have struggled to really be proactive and, and uh, act on these. And then, of course, we have a, um, a big situation coming up potentially next year, which is the national uh, general election. Um, so politics has become quite fractured. You know, there's two sides. They have quite opposing positions. They really talk to each other. Um, and also there's, there's sort of political fractions between the provinces and the national government as well. So it's going to be a very controversial election and we really need to think through what the security threats are around that election and make sure that the Solomon Islands Police Force and also any other um, foreign forces are responding appropriately. With that idea of the police force, you know, in the past, as the Australian government has helped to bolster uh, with training and to deal with things like security threats on the ground. Um, they obviously left Solomon Islands a while ago, did come back recently because there were riots in Seoul's uh, to do with the, the prime minister. On the ground, what is the feeling in terms of outside foreign powers helping with the police force? Uh, do people lean a certain way or what do they talk about when they talk about, yeah, other countries helping out to bolster the Seoul's police force? Yeah, that's a good question. I think the mood is much more different than, um, you know, 2003. Like 2003 was after the civil conflict, you know, you had men on the street with guns, everyone was really insecure and foreign forces were really welcomed because they had that initial show of force um, and also they had a disarmament program so that they got guns out of the hands of um, local people and then, you know, people could feel safe to go market and do, you know, do their everyday activities. 
this time, there's been a lot of questions, you know, do we need foreign forces at this point? Um, I mean, we've now, you know, the, the civil conflict was like 20 years ago next year. <laughs> um, that's when it finished. Yeah. So we've now had sort of um, foreigners um, having a significant presence in security for more or less 20 years. Um, what are the real impacts of this? Um, why do we still have, you know, um, these things happening on the streets, you know, illegal alcohol sales, prostitution, money laundering? Um, why do we still have this need after all this time? Obviously, something's not, you know, going right there with the assistance that's being provided in terms of improving uh, the Solomons police from a service user perspective. So, you know, the, the, the problems that people have with um, who experience crime and then need to report it to the police um, are you know, about the slowness of the, the police and the justice service, um, about their lack of proactiveness sometimes. So, you know, that's, uh, Solomon Islanders, they really just want an effective police force, right, that will respond to these everyday issues that they have um, so that they also feel confident to report crimes. Like one of the issues with um, the police force at the moment, and this was sort of shown out in several surveys, is trust um, by Solomon Islanders in their own police force is fairly low. Um, we'd want it to be much higher, you know, as indicated in surveys and so forth. Um, and and to make that trust, you know, uh, stronger and to come up, we need a proactive police force that seems to be responding to the security threats that people can see on the streets or in the villages or at the logging camps. These are the things that people want to see. They want to see progress on those kind of issues. So the police, the foreign forces that came this time, um, they've been much more criticised and there's been much more questions um, uh, asked about them in civil society, the opposition, parliament, different forums. Uh, you say that uh, to fix that engagement, Australia needs to draw some red lines with Solomon Islands. What are those red lines and, and how should they go about doing that? Yeah, well, I think the first red line that Australia needs to draw is around itself. So they, they, they uh, led the Solomon Islands Assistance Force, which was the sort of foreign um, uh, police and troops that came in after the riots in November uh, 2021. Um, but compared to previous engagements, this force is very vague. We don't really know um, what the metrics of success for success with this force are, what they're supposed to be doing, um, how long they'll stay, and also how they operate together. There's been sort of some confusion about who's in it and how they operate together. Um, so I think the first thing it would be really useful for, you know, increasing people's senses of security around um, the presence of foreign troops, is better communications about what Australia is doing here right now. Dr Anouk Ride, a Solomon Islands-based researcher, speaking there with reporter Jordan Fennell. And since that interview first went to air in May, Australia's Foreign Minister Penny Wong also made numerous visits to the Pacific, including to Solomon Islands. And also since that interview, Solomon Islands has decided to controversially postpone its elections to 2024. Now I want to take you back to almost a year ago when a powerful volcanic eruption in Tonga devastated homes, villages and livelihoods. A project was launched to resettle hundreds whose homes were destroyed, as Adam Jacobson reported back in July. Out of the ashes of January's eruption, a new village is being built on Tonga's Matatoa. The Paletua project is hoping to rehome the Kanokupolo people, whose village on the main island of Tongatapu was devastated by the tsunamis. But the project's manager, Mosese Vakasiuola, says not everyone is happy with the prospects of moving. The younger generation accept the fact that they have to move in terms of safety and for the future of their dream. Then older generation uh, still have a strong uh, link 
to where they grew up. Uh, but slowly trying to uh, to convince them. Uh, they have to do it for their grandchildren and, uh, and their children. The $15 million initiative is being led by the Tongan King and Queen and is expected to be completed in around two years. Mr Vakasiwala says this development is a first of its kind for modern Tonga. Going to have road system, electrical, water supply and the uh, residential uh, home uh, together with uh, town facilities, uh, town hall and all those bits and pieces. Because this is the first time for Tonga to experience uh, developing a new settlement area from scratch. This resettlement project is just one part of the nation's recovery effort, which Mr Vakasiwala says is coming along slowly. The overall recovery, it's coming up slowly in terms of uh, food security and the um, livelihood of people. It's it's pretty fast. The slow part, uh, part is the construction, reconstruction of uh, infrastructures. We have identified it is the nature of the beast. Crystal Ake is a safeguard coordinator for the Mordi Tonga Trust, an NGO which helps vulnerable communities in rural areas. She says the slowdown of the rebuilding effort was due to COVID-19, which caused Tonga to go into lockdown shortly after the eruption. It halted a lot of the uh, the work that we were wanting to do uh, because of the risks involved of having to pass along um, COVID to each other in the community and also the community as well. Um, at large, they were very apprehensive. Um, they knew what COVID um, could do. They've seen it uh, happen in Fiji. And so a lot of them actually uh, requested that we halt a lot of the, the, uh, the work that we were supposed to do. Ms. Ake says resettling other communities displaced by the Hunga Tonga eruption is going to take some time. So moving forward, we're actually targeting a lot of these communities um, to get them into food and, and, and water um, security before uh, we move on to uh, resettlement. And just being mindful that resettlement also means that uh, there's a lot of um, things that that they go into it. And so it's, it's going to take some time. But offer Gutenbauer Liki Liki from Tonga's Women's Crisis Centre says rising living costs are adding to the stress from the triple disasters of the eruption, tsunamis and COVID-19. Our restrictions are getting, are loosening up and we're able now to to do go out and do shopping and bring in food and that the prices are just totally ridiculous. It's like five paanga uh, for one or two tomatoes and and I'm talking about you know the foods that are healthy for us. They're getting more expensive. Despite these challenges, Miss Ake is optimistic that Tonga is on the path to recovery and slowly returning to normal. But I feel uh, as if Tonga is making good progress and. A lot of the work that we're doing in assisting each other, I think we're, we're making the best of what we have at the moment and what we can do. Uh, our spirits are high because we see that the community themselves are always very proactive. And, and so I think that's one of the best things that we can see is that people are still in high spirits. Crystal Ake from Mordi Tonga Trust, ending that report by Adam Jacobson that first went to air in July. 
Let's now turn to a key story out of Papua New Guinea this year, the 2022 election. It was labelled the worst, bloodiest and most disorganised vote in PNG's history. It left citizens and experts calling for drastic measures to improve the democratic process, as Marion Farr reported back in August. Cameras clicked as Papua New Guinea's re-elected Prime Minister James Marape swore in his new cabinet yesterday. The ceremony at PNG's Parliament House foreshadows an end to one of the country's most violent and disorganised elections in history. While the total death toll is still being counted, it's believed to be more than 50. For PNG citizens, this election won't be easily forgotten. It's the worst election and I think, I don't know what our country holds for us. James Giwi, a 66-year-old church minister in the city of Ley, is deeply worried about how the democratic process played out. There are people killed everywhere. There's fights everywhere. After the polls opened in early July, the election has been marred by violence, allegations of vote tampering, electoral roll inaccuracies and huge delays to counting. In the southern highlands capital of Mendy, one seat remains undeclared and riots have broken out in recent days as tensions brew over the delays. Lucas Martin is a local business owner. There have been several homes being destroyed and lives have been lost. People are terrified. The fear is always around, you know. He says many PNG citizens have lost faith in the democratic process. There's no transparency in the conduct of the elections. That is a real issue. And it's something he wants PNG's newly elected politicians to fix. The government needs to really, really come hard on this and really seriously need to address this. Dr Terence Wood, a research fellow at the Development Policy Centre, agrees something needs to be done. He puts the problems down to poor preparation and underinvestment in policing, security and the country's electoral commission. If you want to run elections well, you've really got to start planning for them a long way out. You've got to start spending on them a long way out. But he says there may be little incentive for politicians to change things. That's because in PNG, people tend to vote mostly on local issues that will benefit their communities and families, leaving national agenda items like the running of elections to fall by the wayside. Politicians really aren't that focused on it. The ABC has contacted Prime Minister James Marape for comment, but didn't receive a response. Kaviang MP Ian Ling Stuckey, who has retained his position as Treasury Minister, told local media that election spending in 2022 was at record levels. But Dr Wood says more is clearly needed, and Australia could help out. To play a somewhat catalytic role, to really start pressing for reform, and to really play an active part in resourcing the electoral process. PNG's next general election is due to be held in five years' time. If things don't change by then, Dr Wood fears the worst. If the legitimacy of Papua New Guinea's uh, elected representatives continues to fall because the process through which they're selected is seen as somewhat rigged, uh, then I suspect the public will become increasingly disenchanted with the nature of governance in the country and the current electoral flaws might lead to some sort of slow motion democratic collapse. 
Dr. Terence Wood from the Development Policy Centre, ending that report by Marion Farr. That story first went to air in August, the day after Prime Minister Marape's cabinet was sworn in. Now let's look back at some of the top sports stories coming from the Pacific this year. Across Tonga, Samoa, Vanuatu and beyond, Pacific nations certainly shone on the world stage in 2022, as Nick Fogarty reports. In November, Samoa took the world by storm. Crichton's got time to try and win it for Samoa and Stephen Crichton! Their journey to become only the fifth nation to make the final in almost 60 years of Rugby League World Cups was a thrilling one, knocking off England 27-26 to in a nail-biting semi-final. It wasn't to be in the decider against Australia with a scoreline of 30-10, to but history had already been made, and it was all the more sweet having lost their opening match to England 60-6. to Tour Samoa captain Junior Paolo had this to say to his players after the semi-final win. Never forget the impact that we've had on the world. Don't forget the impact that we've had on those people around the world who have never met us but have always supported us right from the get-go. The team's success drew Samoans out to party on streets across the region, including in Melbourne, where community leader Tony Fretton said he'd never seen so much excitement. When we talk about it's for now, right now, now that we're in the final, it's almost like a, a Pacific. It's it's all the Pacific community in, in Melbourne and Victoria, not just the Samoan ones. Along the way, Samoa met Tonga, narrowly beating them in the quarterfinal, while Cook Islands were also good enough to knock over Wales in their group game. Cook Islands also had success in the women's tournament, beating France. Heading into 2023, the Samoan men also sit on top of the World Rugby Sevens table, having just won their first tournament since 2016. And at the Commonwealth Games, the Samoans collected three silver and a gold in weightlifting and a silver in boxing. To Vanuatu now, whose athletes also tasted success at the Commonwealth Games. Mila Pata and Sherison Toko won bronze in the beach volleyball, a sport that continues to be an area of major focus in the country. Bella Lawak is one of Vanuatu's next generation of beach volleyball stars and in December she spoke about her hopes for the future. I'm very honoured to represent my country and also, yeah, like, beach volleyball can take me, like, visit all the places around the world yeah, and, like, go and participate. The Vanuatu women's cricket team also finally returned to the field after they and their opponents had been starved of action during the pandemic. Samoa, Fiji and PNG travelled to Port Vila, for the inaugural Women's T20 Pacific Cup, with PNG narrowly edging out Vanuatu on the table. The national men's team were also in action in Malaysia, but their performances resulted in relegation from World Cup Challenge League A. On the soccer pitch, it was a year to remember for perhaps the biggest name in Vanuatu sport, Brian Keltak, who signed his first professional contract. It was with A-League club Central Coast Mariners, and the 28-year-old central defender duly debuted in October. He told Pacific Beat it was a long time coming. It's been a long journey, playing in the islands and then moved to New Zealand, and then my aim was to get a professional contract one day, and I was just praying for it, and I knew that I would get it. I just have to keep pushing myself. And lastly, to the Tongan women's netball team, which rocketed to eighth in the world after being unranked at the start of 2022. The team was undefeated this year, 
will play in its first Netball World Cup next year and were welcomed and given the name Tala by the Queen following victories at two Pacific Oz tournaments and the Oceania Championships. Vice-Captain Claire Longy was bullish about the future of the game in Tonga. I feel like it will have a massive impact, um, especially now that netball is making a name for itself. Usually league or union have bigger impact in Tonga, so I feel like our success comes from our people and I think our people know that, so I feel like they'll just feed off that and hopefully the game grows here as well. And that's the year in sport for the Pacific. Nick Fogarty reporting there. And that's it from this special holiday episode of Pacific Review, looking back at some of the key stories of 2022. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan, wishing you a happy new year. And do join us again at the same time next week for more news and views from around the Pacific.